Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28. I'm going to read the last few verses of the chapter from verse 16 to 20. Where we find this record. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Let's pray once more. Heavenly Father, as we study your truth this evening, as we set out on this brief series, we do pray that you would instruct us from your word that we might rise above mere tradition, human expectation, that you would give to us, O Lord, an understanding of what it means to belong to the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth, the body of Jesus Christ, for the praise of the God who rules in our midst. Lord, hear us, teach us, and bless us for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. What is the church? Is it just a social club with a slight spiritual tinge? Is it a place where you can come because you're perhaps a little bit lonely, feel a little bit isolated, quite enjoy being in the company of usually, reasonably, at least polite, if not really pleasant people? Is it just a religious hobby that we have? Is it an occasional indulgence that perhaps even in today's age we like to think of ourselves as good people and one way to tick that box is to be at church from time to time? Even in the church of Jesus Christ, so many of our ideas, so many of our actions betray a low view of the church of the living God. Sometimes I think there's, there's value in us using some of the, uh, the, the richer and fuller phrases of the Bible. Not just church, but the church of the living God, which is the pillar and ground of the truth. The bride of Christ, the, uh, the, the temple of the living God, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The body of which Jesus Christ himself is the head. We've mentioned in a church members meeting and I've mentioned to some of you in person and more privately our desire to address this question of meaningful membership in a faithful gospel church. 
I've explained to various people why we're doing this, our particular concerns, not least that after the, the period in which a number of lockdowns uh, broke up largely the life of this and many other congregations, where there was a lot of toing and froing, where there were particular questions and tensions that arose, it's good for us to know what it means to be a part of Christ's church. A connection that is both formal and functional, by which I mean it is, lies on the surface as a, a definite public connection and commitment. It is a formal connection, but also a functional relationship. You're actually part of a body. You belong as part of the church of Jesus Christ. That connection, that reality, is not debatable and it is not optional. It is part of the fabric of New Testament Christianity, taught by Christ, carried out by the apostles, passed down to their successors as preachers and teachers of the word of God. We're going to begin in Matthew chapter 28, but... Just to warn you, you're either going to need reasonably rapid fingers or you might want to just follow along as I read other portions. There are a couple of primary pack portions which I will identify, but there'll be other times when I'm flicking through passages to try and emphasise certain patterns and principles. So by all means keep a finger in Matthew chapter 28. By all means keep a finger in Acts chapter 18. But in between, you're going to need more than all the other fingers. So, Matthew chapter 28, sometimes referred to as the Great Commission. And one of the clearest examples in the Gospels of that declaration which Christ made to his disciples. Their marching orders, if you will, now that Christ is ascending to his Father and to ours. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, says our risen Lord. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And behold, look, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Here is then the sequence by which Christ anticipates that his church will come into visible expression in the world that he has made. The disciples are now to go into all the earth. And as they go, they are to do these three things. As they go, they are to make disciples of all the nations. That is, that the church of Jesus Christ, these disciples, are going to tell people about the Jesus who died but rose again. And they're going to call sinners to leave their sins, to put their faith in Jesus Christ and trusting him to follow him in all things. Those who are made disciples are then to be baptised in the triune name. You are to baptise the disciples in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God, one name. And those 
who are made disciples and who are baptised in testimony of their new life in Christ Jesus are then to be taught to observe all the things that Christ has commanded them with the confidence that comes from the assurance he gives. Consider this, that I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, bearing in mind that if the first apostles, if these men and those with them are told to do these things, go, and as you go, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the triune name and teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you, that one of the things that those who are baptized as disciples of Jesus Christ will need to be taught and will have to observe is the command to make disciples as you go. So this is a rolling program, if you like. We are the inheritors of these commands. And this becomes the apostolic norm. This is what we now see rolling out through the book of the Acts and then the various epistles that make up our New Testament. God's people going... And as they go, making other disciples by the preaching of the gospel, baptizing those who believe into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to observe all the things which Christ has commanded them. Let me give you a few demonstrations of how that happens. Let's start at the beginning of Acts. And as I say, you can either listen as I work my way through or you can uh, try and follow along. But we begin in Acts chapter 2 and verse uh, 40, uh, 28. Uh, verse 29, sorry. Peter is preaching. Men and brothers, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption." This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. As Peter continues his sermon, there is this sense of sin that comes upon those who hear, and they cry out, men and brothers, what shall we do? Peter says in verse 38, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together, had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all, as anyone had need. 
So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So here is this little group of followers of Jesus Christ. And they begin carrying out the terms of the Great Commission now that the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon his people. And they preach this good news of Jesus Christ. And as they preach, the people of Israel are crying out, what must we do? And the answer is, you need to repent of your sins and you need to be baptised in the name of this Jesus. And this gift of the Holy Spirit will come to you. And that promise is for you. And it's for your children. And it's to as many as are afar, all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And so those who become disciples are baptised and they continue together and they go on in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And they're obviously telling other people as well about the Lord Jesus Christ because the Lord is adding to the church daily those who were being saved. So people are being saved, people are being baptised, and people are being added to this body of believers in Jerusalem, which is now being identified as the church there in Jerusalem. And some of the next few chapters deal with the, uh, the challenges that the church faces in Jerusalem until we come to chapter 8 and verse 1. Stephen has just been martyred. And Saul of Tarsus had been consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So you have this body in Jerusalem of people. Men and women who had been uh, converted from their sins, who have been baptised in testimony to their relationship to Christ and who have been under the apostles' instruction. And now a wave of persecution arises against that particular body. And though the apostles remain in Jerusalem, the rest of the congregation, largely it seems, is scattered from that city. Then you can go on to chapter 9 and verse 26. Because Saul himself is then converted. And when he had come to Jerusalem, what did he try to do? He tried to join the disciples. Who are the disciples in Jerusalem? They are the church of Jesus Christ. And so Saul now, sharing that spiritual identity with them, he wants to become a visible part of that visible congregation. They were actually all afraid of him, says Luke, and they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas, the encourager, <coughs> he brought him in. He speaks to the apostles about how he has been converted. And Paul then was with them at Jerusalem. He becomes a part of that group of people. And then, verse 31, the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee and Samaria had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit they were multiplied 
chapter 10 and verse 48 may be not quite so clear about what happens to Cornelius and his household afterwards, but they hear the good news from Peter. The Holy Spirit is poured out upon them also. And Peter asks, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized to have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Then they asked him to stay a few days. You're seeing the pattern developing. It's happened in Jerusalem. It's happened as the people in Jerusalem were scattered under the persecution. It happens because people who become Christians look for the Christians and say, I want to be a part of the group to which you belong. And when others hear and believe, they too are baptised in the name of the Lord. Go on to chapter 11, verses 23 to 26. Barnabas arrives now in Antioch. He came, he saw the grace of God, he was glad. He encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Now it doesn't explicitly say there that they were baptised, but that's what we know happens when people get added to the Lord. We've seen that. Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. When he'd found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and did what? They taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Paul with Barnabas or Saul and Barnabas are then appointed to go out and preach this gospel. And so we find them in chapter 14 now and verse 21. They preached the gospel in that city and made many disciples. They returned to the places they'd already preached, Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. How do you identify the disciples in those cities? It's the church in Lystra, in Iconium, in Antioch. The people who've become followers of Jesus Christ, who've been baptised, and who those who have taught them are now instructing, including the appointment of elders in each of the churches. Chapter 15 and verse 36 This tension begins to develop between the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers. So they go back to the church in Jerusalem. An edict is passed in the agreement of all those who are responsible. And Judas and Silas and Paul and uh, Barnabas are sent out with this particular message. Paul and Barnabas in verse 35, what do they do? They remained in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brothers in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Our brothers in every city. And so in verse 41, after the disagreement over Mark and Paul having chosen Silas, he went through Syria and Cilicia strengthening the churches. So you begin to see how the language of disciples and brothers 
and churches is the same language. If you're going to visit the disciples, you're going to go to the churches. If you teach in the churches, you've spoken to the brothers. That's the working assumption of the book of the Acts. You come into chapter 16, one that you all know probably very well. It's the one where Lydia is converted, then the slave girl is delivered, then the Philippian jailer is also saved, calling upon the name of the Lord. Those who believe in those households, what happens to them? They're baptised in the river in Philippi. How are they then described when Paul writes a letter to the people who heard the good news and were baptised in Philippi? Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. What groups of saints have overseers and deacons? Churches do. Lydia and her believing and baptised household. The Philippian jailer with his believing and baptised household. And then anybody else who may have now been converted and baptised. Paul writes to them as a church, a gathered body. Chapter 17 and verse 4. Now he goes to Thessalonica and he goes into the synagogue as his custom was. He reasons from the scriptures. He explains and demonstrates that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and says, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded. And a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. When the time comes... How does Paul write to those people? 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then... To finish making the point, but not excessively to weary you, Acts chapter 18. In Corinth, that godless ancient city, where Paul again reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he took his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own head, I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justus, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptised. I hope you'll believe me when I say I'm stopping there, not because I've run out of material, but because I trust I have made the point. I want you to see just how normal that sequence is. It's sometimes we read through those things and we're not picking up the fact that what is happening in the book of Acts over and over and over and over again is the simple carrying out of the commands which our Lord Jesus gave to his disciples. As you go, make other disciples. Baptise them in the triune name and teach them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. 
And those believing, those hearing, believing and baptised people in Corinth, chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus, but uh, the Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. And then at the beginning of the second letter, to the church of God which is at Corinth with all the saints who are in Achaia. How did the apostles and Timothy and Titus and the others who then followed on being taught that apostolic truth, how did they implement the Great Commission? By making disciples, by baptising all those who made a credible profession of faith in Jesus Christ, and by teaching them all the things that Christ had commanded, by gathering those who believed and were baptised into churches for the sake of this ongoing care and instruction. It is the almost entirely uniform testimony of the New Testament. It is repeatedly stated and demonstrated. It is always, I believe, implied and assumed that if you hear and believe and are baptised, you become part of a new covenant church. Now, after the resurrection, there is only one possible instance that I can think of in the scriptures where that assumption may be questionable. Does anybody know who that might be? Okay. Yeah, okay, got a, got a couple of right answers there. Now, what do you think the Ethiopian... The Ethiopian eunuch is the only person in the whole New Testament that we know of who was converted and baptised who does not evidently become a part of a gathered congregation. What do you think he did when he went back to Ethiopia? I think he spoke the word. I trust that as God blessed that, other people were converted. What do you think happened next? Yeah, I think there's a church in Ethiopia before very long of hearing, believing and baptised men and women. And what I want to do is to use this situation in Corinth as a case study to emphasise how that pattern works. Because it's put as simply as you can in Acts chapter 18 and verse 8. At the end of that verse, many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptised, and that group of hearing, believing and baptised individuals is then referred to very plainly and straightforwardly in the opening verses of both the two letters to the Corinthians, and we think there are at least four letters, only two of which we have, as the Church of Jesus Christ in Corinth. That's what it looks like when the Great Commission is carried out. That's what it looks like when churches are formed. So... Many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptised. They were hearing. What did they hear? Well, we know. We know because the disciples were told to go and make disciples. 
And we know that that involves the preaching of the truth. We have some sense of it from Acts chapter 18 itself. Paul reasoned in the synagogue, verse 4, every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. What was he persuading them about? Well, when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. That this man, Jesus of Nazareth, that he was in fact the Messiah of God. And that doesn't mean then that that's all that Paul had to say. But it's the essence, it's the substance of his gospel address. So that you can then hear him say when he's writing to the Corinthians and reminding them of what he has done, that his preaching in Corinth was of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That message of the cross, which was foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul insists that that was at the core of his preaching to them. Verse 1 of chapter 2. And I, brothers... When I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Or chapter 15. Brothers, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve and so on and so forth. Last of all, by me also. What did Paul preach? And what did the Corinthians hear? The apostolic gospel in all its simplicity and in all its fullness. Paul went to place after place. Remember how he says to the Thessalonians, you know, this, this would be insanity the way the world thinks. We just suffered in Philippi for preaching what we preached. And we came to you and we preached exactly the same thing over again because that's the gospel with which we were entrusted. And he emphasizes to the Corinthians so that we know what it was that was the means of God calling people out of darkness into his light. He was proclaiming Jesus of Nazareth, who died for our sins and rose again for our justification as the Messiah of God. And telling people that whoever believes in this Jesus will not perish, but obtain everlasting life. Now understand that simply by reading those things out this evening, you have heard the good news. Now, is there more to it than that? In one sense, yes. In another, no. You now know enough to make Christ trustworthy in your eyes. If you were here this morning... You heard of the Jesus who, having died, rose again and demonstrated his resurrection by many infallible proofs. Everyone here has heard this good news about Jesus Christ. The Corinthians heard it with intent. It didn't just bounce off their ears. It came to them the way it came to the Thessalonians, not as the word of men, 
but as the very word of God. It came not in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. Have you heard this gospel? On one level, everybody says yes. But I want to know if you've heard it the way the Corinthians heard it, the way Lydia heard it, the way the Philippian jailer heard it, the way the Thessalonians heard it, the way the Ephesians heard it. Have you understood that Jesus is God's Christ, that he is the saviour of sinners like me and you? And the only way that you will ever be delivered from the power of your sins, its pollution and its punishment in the hell that invariably follows for those who die outside of Jesus Christ. The Corinthians heard of the Christ who saves. Many of them, hearing, believed. That is a simple response of faith to that good news. They received it. They received the truth concerning Jesus of Nazareth. They heard about the man who had died at the hands of the Romans and the Jews. They heard about the life that he had lived. They heard about the prophecies that had been made concerning Messiah that he had fulfilled. They heard about the fact that these men had seen this Jesus. They had handled his resurrection body. They had seen the glory of the risen Christ. They had watched him ascend up into heaven. They had all the information that you and I have today in our Bibles. And they put their trust in him. Now, I, I fear that there are people even here this evening who are overcomplicating this. I'm not saying it's easy, because faith is God's gift. In that sense, you cannot do it yourself. But so often, well, what does it mean? What does it mean to have faith? It means to rely on Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. It means to depend upon him because you've realised you cannot depend upon yourself. It's that awareness of your own emptiness, your own need, that you cannot stand by yourself, that you cannot save yourself from your sins. You cannot resist those temptations and you cannot keep from those transgressions. And it is to lean upon Jesus Christ. Some of you boys and girls, you get tired. What do you do? You lean on dad or mum. What if you got so tired that you couldn't stand? Do you think dad, if you were small enough and he were big enough, he'd catch you as you fell into his arms and he would hold you? That's what a sinner does coming to Jesus Christ. Exhausted, weak, guilty, helpless. On his kind arms you fall. It is to abandon yourself and it is to trust and depend upon him to understand that his complete merits are all that you need that his finished work is the done deal and that his atoning death provides for you all that is needful for you to stand accepted with the holy god of heaven and earth and then to drop onto him to drop into christ the Thessalonians, Paul reminded them of what their conversion was. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, 
even Jesus, who is delivering us from the wrath to come. And that is salvation. And if you have trusted Jesus, if you, having heard, have believed, then you are a disciple. I wish there were a way to bottle the Holy Spirit. In fact, I'm glad there isn't, but I kind of wish I could and and sort of shake some out that I might know some of his influence now to persuade some of you what it means to believe and that you would believe. Not just that you would understand definitions, but you would enter into the reality of things. Some of you who seem to be halting between two opinions. Some of you who are distressed about the sin in your souls, but you haven't yet, as far as you know, closed with Jesus Christ. It is simply calling upon his name. It is trusting him to do for you what you can never do for yourself. It is a resting of all that you are upon all that he is. And you might say, well, I, I, how much do I need to know? Enough to go to him. Enough to trust in him. There's not a Christian here who isn't learning new things about the Lord Jesus Christ every week that they live. It's a simple casting yourself upon the Christ who is presented as God's saviour in the book that God has given. Have you heard? And have you believed? Are you living the life of Jesus Christ? His life in you? The Corinthians, they heard that good news. They believed in the Christ who was declared to them. And having heard and believed, they were baptised. Why were they baptised? Was it because they'd come from the right family? Had a good pedigree there in Corinth? Nope, not at all. Was it because they had the right look? They were dressed the way that a good baptismal candidate should be dressed? Was it because they'd been long enough around the church building that people sort of got fed up of waiting and said, well, I suppose they belong, we might as well bring them in anyway? Was it because they were clever enough to to answer all the questions that were put to them, that they, they could pass some kind of test? Why were the Corinthians baptized? Because they'd heard and because they had believed. And because there was, although it may have been in the bud rather than in the bloom, the evidence of their having heard and believed. They turned to God from idols. They started leaving behind the wickedness and the wretchedness of the life that they had been living in one of the proverbially godless cities of the ancient world. How much had they left behind? Not as much as we would have liked. Because as you read through the letters to the Corinthians, you see how much more they needed to learn. But Paul is still able to say to them with regard to some of the the vilest and most self-indulgent wickednesses that were characteristic of their city, such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Baptism is not a mark of Christian maturity. It is fundamentally a mark of Christian identity. That doesn't mean we do it foolishly. That doesn't mean we do it thoughtlessly. But when someone hears God's gospel, believes in the Christ 
who is presented in that gospel for the salvation of their sins and begins to show the marks of a true child of God, they ought to be baptised. A life transformed by the Spirit of God means a public testimony to be born, that I have died with Jesus Christ and I have risen again in him to newness of life. Brothers and sisters, you've seen that three times in the last few weeks here. That's what's been happening. People have heard the gospel and they've believed and so they've been baptised. Have you heard? Have you believed? Have you been baptised? It's a matter of obedience to Jesus Christ. Should you be baptised? If you've heard and believed, yes. Will you be baptised? Well, that's in part your question and it's in part the church's question. You're the one who has to say, I have heard and believed and this is the new life that I am living in Christ. And we should be able to say, yeah, we can see it too. Sometimes we say, yeah, we've seen it for quite a while. You may not have seen it so soon, but we saw it. Sometimes we might say, well, that's a shock to us, but we're delighted that it's happened. And maybe we say it must have been quite recent because up to this point, there haven't been that many changes. Maybe we say very gently, well, we're just seeing the first green shoots. But that's life where there used to be death. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes people grow very quickly. Sometimes people grow more slowly. The Corinthians were undoubted believers and they remained a right old mess for quite a long time. And so the apostle begins to write letters to them. And we think we have at least two of, or two of at least four that were written. To whom does Paul write? Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. That's a stunning sentence. You understand that, don't you? To the people of God called out from the world in Corinth, to those who are set apart in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the same sweet designation to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in all Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Who are the church? You notice I'm using a plural there. Who are the church singular? The hearing Believing, baptised people of Corinth. Somebody last week was quite surprised that Mepesha was coming into membership with us. I was quite surprised that they were surprised. It wasn't an unfriendly challenge. It was like, I've never known a church where people get baptised and come into membership so quickly said, according to the Bible, there's no such thing as a church where people are baptised and aren't in membership. To be baptised is to become a part of the visible church of Jesus Christ. 
We simply formalised that on the Lord's Day evening when we asked Mepesha those questions and together as a church we recognised her public entrance into the body of Jesus Christ as someone who had been baptised. And once you're part of that recognisable public body, you are instructed further in the life of the children of God. Since the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, every believer that we know of in the New Testament, with the possible exception, at least in the short term, of the Ethiopian eunuch, has a clear or clearly implied public commitment to a local body of believers. Now, don't buy into this nonsense that you're part of the invisible church. Because the invisible church is always visible. It comes into visibility in congregations like this. How do you know that you're part of the invisible church? It's when you've heard, believed and been baptised into the visible church. The invisible church has a visible form in time and space. There is a, if you like, a universal congregation... It's every believer, all of God's chosen people throughout time and space who've been brought to Jesus Christ. But where do you see them in this world? You see them marked as hearing, believing and baptised people who have covenanted together to follow Jesus Christ and to be instructed. The so-called invisible church always comes into existence in local congregations of baptised believers. Those who have made a formal, solemn, voluntary, enduring devotion and dedication to the Christ who has saved them, the truth concerning Jesus Christ, and the people who with them have believed that truth and entered into everlasting life. They commit to and they belong to such a group. And my friends, the shorthand that we use for that process and that commitment is church membership. That's how anybody enters in to the church. It is by hearing God's good news about Jesus Christ. It is by believing in Christ for ourselves And it is then by being baptised in testimony to our new life and so declaring that we belong to the church which has validated our profession of faith in baptism. A faithful and well-ordered gospel church. What of you? Where do you stand this evening? This relationship is formal and it is functional. It is not only formal. It's not just a label. It's not just a name. It's not just you signing a piece of paper. It's not just a members and friends list where somebody happens to have dropped your name onto it so that's okay and you're good to go. But neither is it merely functional that you're working and serving and engaging in the life of a body to which you do not actually belong. It is formal and functional. It is a public, clear commitment. I am Christ's, he is mine, 
and I am his in company with all those who have also named the name of Jesus Christ. Meaningful membership begins with an understanding of what the church is and how sinners like us enter it. It is the carrying out of Christ's own great commission. Go. And we're still going. Make disciples. And we're still trying to do that the way the apostles did, by declaring Jesus Christ, the saviour of sinners, risen from the dead. Those who testify of faith in Jesus Christ do so by being baptised in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And having been baptised, they go on being taught all the things that Christ has commanded, confident that Christ is with his people to the very end of the age. Brothers and sisters, we simply call that church. And it's part of our obedience to the commandments of our Lord and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.